appreciate our motivation. So take uh, one thing that you had today, and one thing that you used today. No, let's say your computer or one of your devices and consider how many living beings' energy was involved in creating all of the parts for that and assembling it and even designing it. Just consider for a moment people who are very technical, who design it, people who are very skilled with their hands or work in factories that make different parts of it. Some of the people live here. Some of the people live in many different countries. And yet through all of their efforts to design, build, export, import, put in a store or in a warehouse to sell. How many beings were involved in us having that device or that computer? Then think of all the people involved in designing the software. It's really rather amazing how many people are involved with this and how those people have many different living standards. And the fact that we don't know them, and yet through their dedicating their life energy in making these things that we use. We have so many things to use. 
So we're very interwoven and dependent on other living beings. And the fact that they put their energy out and we benefit from it means that we are dependent on their kindness. And we don't even know who they are to go say thank you. So having a sense of that dependency, that arises a feeling of want to contribute our share to this interconnected web of mutual benefit. And to cherish all these other beings who our life and our ease and our happiness depends. And in that way, have the wish to repay that kindness and let that build up so that it becomes bodhicitta motivation to become fully awakened so we can benefit them most efficiently, most effectively. And a a determination to overcome and banish all the different mental states, all the different latencies that obscure our ability to do that. So there's a small stereotype breaking event today. Um, As somebody mentioned uh, at stand-up meeting, our neighbors uh, took in two people from Blanchard who they didn't know when the fire in Blanchard started and they had to evacuate. And when one of you asked, kind of, well, why did you take in somebody 
that you know, he said, unconditional love. Really beautiful. And today, when we were driving back, I looked, and he has a U.S. flag, and beneath that, a bright red Trump 2020 flag. So aren't you happy that that breaks your stereotypes? Yeah? That it broadens your mind? I think that's great. So if you hang on to your stereotypes, are you going to smile at that person or growl at that person? Because you approve of one thing, but you disapprove of the other. And what we approve and disapprove of is of inherent value and determines who a person is and what their worth is. Or are we going to drop all that? Okay, so we've been talking about karma and its effects. And we're in the section now about current ethical uh, issues. So it's interesting as you, we go into each of these and read His Holiness's comments, we may notice that he doesn't make any hard and fast pronouncements. And we want hard and fast pronouncements. Okay? And he doesn't make any. And most of what he says is, it depends on this and it depends on that. It depends on the other thing. And even when he lists some of the things it depends on, he still doesn't tell us what the pronouncement is. So the topic of karma is uh, an extremely, one of the ones that's extremely obscure. And making hard and fast pronouncements is very difficult especially when you apply it to individual situations where there's so many different factors involved. But still, it's helpful to think a little bit about these issues in general because uh, most of them we we either have or will encounter in our lives um, because they're you know, what are coming up in people's lives now. And we don't even have all of the contemporary issues in here, because otherwise the chapter would go on and on and on, and we, we wouldn't finish it. Okay, so we talked about cloning last time, stem cell research, birth control and abortion. Yeah. So cloning, birth control, and abortion, you know, that has to do with arising, with giving birth, the beginning of life. 
And now we're going to get into the end of life. So assisted suicide is the first topic here. So His Holiness says, it may happen that a family member has a terminal illness and experiencing great pain asks for help in terminating his or her life. Assisted suicide is difficult and complicated. Interestingly, a somewhat similar situation arose during the Buddha's lifetime. A monk was meditating on the unattractiveness of the body, the foulness of the body, and doing it very uh, intently. And misunderstanding the purpose of this meditation, which is to reduce lust, Instead, he grew so disgusted with his own body that he was miserable day and night. And he just felt, I've got to get rid of this body. It's so disgusting. So he asked another monk to kill him, to free him from his body. The other monk, thinking, well, you know, somebody asked me to do something. I should do it, you know, take care of other sentient beings and so on. So the other monk killed him. And when the Buddha heard about this, he established the precept to abandon taking life and encouraging death, which was the first of the uh, parajikas to be established. This was the, the first time, because in the first 12 years, there weren't established uh, precepts because people knew how to behave. This event, um, no, I'm sorry, it wasn't the first. The one about uh, sexual contact was the first. But this one came just after that and was one of the four, you know, main precepts. Okay, so it's an important one. It was about an instance of assisted suicide. So it's not even going and killing somebody because you hate them. Yeah, which you you know everybody would agree. Oh, that you know killing's bad because you can you imagine somebody who's very angry and vindictive going out you know torturing somebody and killing them, and this person is not angry and vindictive. They're doing something that the other person wanted, and yet. It's a very important precept that we should not uh, violate. Okay, So it's a good example of don't do everything people ask you to do. Don't give them everything they want, because it could be bad for them or non-virtuous for you. Making a decision to put someone out of their suffering is difficult when we do not know where he or she will be reborn. When we take rebirth into account, we see that assisted suicide does not stop all suffering. Yeah. So many of the people involved, that's your motivation. You, you don't want to see somebody you care about suffer. And yet, because of not having a large world view, yeah. then uh, you think that 
you know, assisting them in, a, in suicide would uh, meet their wish to be put out of suffering. But it doesn't, because people get reborn, and according to karma, you know, the dukkha of samsara continues. So His Holiness says, I would encourage someone with a terminal illness to see herself as more than just her disease. She is still a whole person with great human potential. And that's the thing. When people are terminally ill and they can't do what they used to do, they think, I'm useless, I'm a burden on others, it's better for everybody if I die. And here is His Holiness saying, you're still a whole person with great human potential. Now, what kind of human potential does that person have? They can't go out and get a job. They're terminally ill. You know, they can't do any job in society. How are they useful? How do they have potential? Because from a Buddhist viewpoint, our usefulness is not our career. And our usefulness is not our ability to raise a family. What makes our life useful is transforming our mind. So even if your body is a wreck, if you still have your mental faculties, or at least whatever mental faculties you have that remain, by practicing the Dharma, you can still purify negativities and accumulate incredible amount of virtue. So in that way, the life is highly meaningful. And, in, and a person who is aware of that, who is uh, terminally ill and can't work, from a Buddhist viewpoint, they're making their life much more meaningful than a person who greedily is a CEO of a Fortune 400, or is it 500 or 600 company, okay, uh, who, who is, you know, has a corner office and lots of friends in power, um, but their whole motivation in life is to exploit people and, you know, have a, a good, comfortable social status. You know, so the terminal person, their life is, you know, more beneficial from the Buddhist viewpoint than this other person. Okay? So when people get discouraged when they're very ill, you know, it's because they're just seeing their life in a, in a very ordinary, you know, mon- from a, a mundane worldview of just this lifetime. Yeah? Whereas if we see our life or anybody's life within uh, the fact that a precious human life, this human life, is incredibly difficult and extremely valuable, then, yeah, okay, you can't get out of bed or whatever it is, but you can still practice the path. So that's important to remember and important to remind people of. I think I 
mentioned a young man who I was helping in Singapore who was dying of cancer. There were two young men, actually, I was helping, but with one of them. And um, he one day, his flat, his family flat was quite high up, and we were looking at, he was looking out the window and saying, my life is so useless, you know. Because he was on track to, you know, going to the U.S. and getting a degree at, at a good university and coming back to Singapore and getting a great job. And now all of that was in shreds. And he said, my life's useful. And I looked down and I said, look at all those people driving their cars, running here, running there. I think your life is more useful because you know the Dharma and you can create merit. And most of these people are just running around, not really thinking about their lives. Mm -hmm. Spiritual practice can still go forward even when one is terminally ill. At the times her mind is clear, she can direct it towards cultivating love and compassion, even if she is suffering physically. Friends and relatives encourage her to see, can encourage her to see that her life still has meaning and purpose, even when her body is incapacitated or in pain. On the other hand, someone may be in a coma with brain damage and no hope of recovery. Because he lacks proper mental functions, even if he is reminded of positive thoughts, the benefit is minimal or none. Okay. If that person can still hear and you play chanting or teachings, that's very good for the person. This is talking where really a person doesn't have much mental function at all. Okay, so that's the situation of the person. In addition, the family experiences great distress and society expends resources to keep the person alive. Such situations may be an exception, and it is understandable if the family allows the person to die naturally. Note, he doesn't say if the family pulls the plug. Yeah, but allows the person to die naturally. Okay, now, so that's assisted suicide. What about regular suicide? Okay, and we just got uh, a request today from Matt, the brother of one of his friends. Did you? Yeah, took a, a whole bunch of pills a couple of days ago and hasn't woken up since. His pupils aren't responding. His kidneys and his liver are failing. My guess is he's probably on life support. And the family is going to be faced with the decision of pulling the plug or not, which is a horrible decision for the family. Okay, so like other forms of taking life, suicide is considered killing. It is not a full karmic path because the object of the action must be a person other than ourselves 
and the completion of the act means the victim dies first. Okay? If you commit suicide, you don't die before you die. Okay? So Buddhism does not say a person who attempts suicide is evil and will be punished. However, it is a self-centered action that does not take into account the feelings of friends and family and how much they will suffer if one commits suicide. Yeah? Somehow it seems that someone's mind is so going round and around in circles, my suffering, my suffering, my suffering, doesn't see any way to modify their suffering, doesn't see any way out, and thinks that death is the cure to stop all suffering, which it isn't. Yeah? And then the person, you know, kills themselves, and it, you know, it seems to me that it's very difficult when they get in that state to take into account the feelings of other people and how hurt and destroyed the lives of other people are when somebody they care about commits suicide. Yeah. The family, I mean, in addition to the regular kind of grief grief people feel, uh, the family and the close friends tend to self-recriminate. Yeah. I should have seen this coming. I should have done something. If only I had done da 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 da, he or she would not have done d d d d d, and and then that person or those people torment themselves with all this. What if I should have been able to stop it? When you know, many times they don't even know. Yeah. It seems that the people who let other people know that they're considering suicide don't actually do it and complete it as much as the people who don't talk about it and just do it. So it's it's so hard, you know, on the person themselves and on the family. I remember one time talking about this and somebody wrote in a comment and said, you know, it sounds like you're blaming the person who who was suiciding, you know, and criticizing that person for being self-centered and shouldn't you have more compassion for a person who's suffering that much that they want to kill themselves. So that person definitely has a point. I am not criticizing them and blaming them. I'm saying what a tragedy it is and pointing out that how, what I'm pointing out is the disadvantages of the self-centered thought and how that thought can overtake us and make us suffer and make other people suffer as well. So I'm not trying to make the person 
add to the suffering of the person who wants to kill themselves by telling them that they're bad and evil and sinful and selfish. Okay, that's not my purpose. But they do say that we have, uh, what are they called? The neurons that uh, allow us to understand. Mirror neurons, you know, where we can sense the feelings of others and have an idea of what they could experience. Yeah. So it goes in both directions the family understanding the person who wants to suicide, but the person who wants to suicide also understanding uh, what's going on with the people around them, too. It's, it's really a tragedy. Okay. Someone once told me, this is holiness, that he longed for the peace of death, because our world, with all its problems, is so difficult to bear. If we could be assured that in death we would find lasting happiness and peace, his wish might have some reason. However, we lack that guarantee. Death is not a cure for pain. Meanwhile, because we are alive now, We can do something to resolve our difficulties and to contribute to the betterment of the world. The more we recognize the purpose and value of our precious human life, the more we will find meaning in our life and the more we will appreciate our good fortune to have this wonderful human brain and human heart. With these, we can practice the path to awakening and eliminate all problems and their causes. We need to cultivate a long-range perspective, patience, and confidence. With these, we can abandon despair, see the goodness around us, and know that we can make our lives worthwhile. So it's very important. You know, I think some people uh, read so much news that they become quite depressed and filled with despair. And I think it's very important to realize that the people who write the news are writing it with the intention of really making us quite emotional, you know, and of talking about the bad things because that grabs our attention. And the more they can grab our attention, the more advertisers come to, you know, and the more they, you know, the media makes, the more profit they draw in. So we have to be wise and recognize that whatever we media uh, we watch, and some are more truthful than others, some are more reliable than others, still the emphasis is on what's bad, what's unusual, all this kind of stuff that has the effect of increasing despair and, and uh, you know, depression and hopelessness. 
And many years ago, His Holiness was in Seattle and he spoke at the convention center. You may remember this. And he, um, he was so cute. He was saying, you know, all you people, all you reporters, you know, you have a good nose and you sniff out all the bad things that people do and you expose that so that those things can be corrected in society. And that's very good that you do that. But you always talk about what's wrong and you talk about people harming each other all the time. You never report people helping each other. You hardly ever report the good things that go on. And so you're creating in people's minds you know, a false perception of what the world is about, ignoring all the goodness there is. He's going like this tall, the journalist, you know. And, uh, you know, and saying, okay, in one city or in one state, how many people are murdered in one day? Yeah, a few, yeah. How many people help other people during that same day? Thousands, millions. People are always helping each other. Everything, that you know, from the person who's stocking the, the groceries in the grocery store to the, the person who's running a test at the hospital to somebody who is uh, making sure that your septic system is installed properly. Everybody is, you know, helping others and contributing to society. But the news doesn't report that and it doesn't emphasize it. So we actually come away with a very skewed vision of the world, thinking that everything is falling apart and degenerate and you can't trust anybody. Yeah. And then, of course, feeling very down about the whole thing. So if you find your mind is getting stressed out, if it's getting down, yeah, look at how much media you are, are watching and what kind of media you're watching. And if you're just reading the news again and again and again, yeah, then you have some control over your mood and you can stop reading that stuff. Okay? So just just check how your mind is instead of just saying, oh, it's the pandemic and so we're stressed because of the pandemic. I mean, here at the Abbey, how much do we really feel the effects of the pandemic? Compared to most people in this country, we do not. Yeah. Like somehow, I don't know how, we happen to be so fortunate. And yet, what do we do? We read the news and then we get discouraged and upset and despair and, oh, I'm so stressed all the time. And, and we whine. And we complain. And yet, you know, even in the middle of a pandemic, even in the middle of the craziness of the upcoming election, people are still helping other people. 
Yeah. And people are still trustworthy, you know, to different extents, but we can trust other people. And people are still kind. And people help each other. So don't let your mind get skewed in that kind of way. It's very unrealistic. Okay, meanwhile, because we are alive now, we can do something to resolve our difficulties and to contribute to the betterment of the world. Okay, so we may not be able to stop the pandemic. Yeah, there's a lot of things going on that we can't stop, that we can't help make better. But there are some things that we can. And we cannot snap our fingers and make cure things As one person, we cannot save the world, you know, for people who have savior complexes that, you know, I should be able, you know, to go out and, you know, become president and change the whole world. Yeah, really? You think? Yeah? You think you can do that? You think anybody who becomes president can change the whole world by themselves without any help. Okay, so what we have to do is see where our sphere of influence is and what we're good at doing and then contribute in that way. Okay, so... uh, Yeah, don't, we sometimes think, oh, I wish I could do this and this and this and this and solve everything, but, oh, I don't have the nerve to do it. I don't have the resources to do it. We all work in our own ways. And I think it's very important to understand because this mind that says, you know, I want to change the world, It sees ourselves as a leader and thinks that leaders are more important than anybody else. Okay, A leader is only a leader because the followers give them the, the influence and the power. A leader is completely dependent on their followers. Read chapter 4 of Arya Deva's The 400, okay? A leader is not some inherently existent person who can control others. They're dependent on the followers, yeah? And we all, we have all this leadership training now. Everybody has leadership training. I think we should have follower training because a leader can't do anything unless there's good followers. If the followers are flakes, the leaders may have fantastic ideas, but nothing gets implemented because the followers are, you know, I don't like this, I don't like that, so-and-so call me a name, now they don't like my idea, people don't appreciate me, I'm not going to do this because I'm always assigned to do this task, and I want a better position, I want to represent the whole NGO, I want to represent the whole, uh, you know, 
philanthropic organization. I want to be somebody, but I'm just at the bottom, you know, sending out emails and wrapping packages, and, you know, I'm just useless, and they don't appreciate me. You know, somebody who thinks like that, huh? it's ridiculous. Because if there's nobody doing that kind of, those kind of works, the leader can have all the fantastic plans they want, and absolutely nothing happens. Yeah, because a leader is one person and can't do everything by themselves. So I think we should have follower training because there's many more followers than leaders. And if the followers are good and the leader is good, then everybody can do so much together. So with these, we can abandon despair, see the goodness around us, and know that we can make our lives worthwhile. Next one, the death penalty. Criminal actions that harm others create destructive karma. Using methods that are both wise and compassionate, as a society, we must do our utmost to prevent it, uh, criminal actions, and to offer sympathy and to support, uh, family, support to families who grieve the loss of their loved ones or property. However, we must ask if executing the perpetrator dissipates the grief of the victims and their families. Okay, so we've done work with people on uh, the death row, and some of you were here when uh, the attorney for one of the people that we work with came, and she wanted, uh, you know, I, she wanted me to, I don't, what do you call it, testify or whatever it is, uh, to see if we could get him clemency. And she uh, told me, because she's been to a lot of executions and worked with a lot of people on death row, uh, that what happens is when there's been a crime and the prosecutor wants to get the death sentence, uh, then because that's how the pro then because then the public thinks the prosecutor is tough on crime and they'll elect the prosecutor again. Yeah, they don't want a prosecutor who's soft on crime. They want somebody who's going to punish all those evil people. And uh, so what they do with the family is they really talk to the family and tell the family that when the perpetrator has been put to death, then justice is complete and they will feel relieved because somebody, the person who harmed their loved ones, has now been killed, executed, uh, and what uh, that person did to their loved ones, now society is doing with them. So they will feel relieved and complete so that they can put the murder down or whatever it was. They can put it down. They can heal. That's what the system tells the family. 
And Susan told me at all the, uh, that, that they build this up, the family comes to the execution, the person is executed, yeah. Maybe they're interviewed in the parking lot afterwards, maybe not. But even if they are, after that, the prosecutor, the system, completely drops them. They have no use for them anymore because the person's been put to death. Okay. But the family is still grieving. The killing of the perpetrator does not remove the grief of the family. They're still hurting. They're still grieving. And now they feel even worse because the prosecutor and all the other people on that side were pumping them up so much with how they will feel good after justice has been done. And that isn't how they feel. And, you know, they may realize they've been used. So she said the majority of the executions she's been to, that's been the effect for the family. Yeah. For the families that say, oh, justice has been done and now that horrible person has been killed, that's what they're supposed to say, but I wonder in their hearts, how do you rejoice at the death of another human being, the intentional death of another human being? How do you rejoice at that? Yeah? So, I think death penalty is a lot of baloney. And also, because the people on death row, you know, it, it's so absurd. You're on death row. You are shackled. You can't go in the yard very much. You can't go to the day room very much. You're really miserable. You know, they really limit your visitors and who you can talk to and all this stuff. And then... The day of the execution, they put you on suicide watch. They do not want you to commit suicide because they want you to be alive so that the state can murder you. And before they murder you, you can dictate for the first time in those decades you've been in prison what you want to eat, and they will make it. So your last meal, you can have steak and ice cream and everything you've been craving for right before they kill you. It's so absurd. And very often the people on death row are the ones who uh, who really make an effort to change. Because they know that they're not getting out of that prison alive. Similarly with the p- people who have uh, a sentence of life 
uh, life without the option, the chance of parole. You know, when I was at San Quentin once, and one guy said to me, yeah, we all know we're not getting out of here alive, and we have to make a life in here. And so they know to make a life, they have to change. Yeah. And a lot of these guys do change. But they are not given another chance in society. Okay. Death is something that none of us wants. When it takes place naturally, it is beyond our control. But when death is willfully and deliberately inflicted, it is tragic. Whether death is called illegally or caused illegally or legally, as in the case of the death penalty, negative karma is created. Yeah, so it doesn't matter. Those people, you know, the warden, the uh, people who participate in the execution, they are all creating negative karma. Whole lot of them. Yeah. Even if we don't consider the karmic consequences in future lives, many disadvantages are that of the death penalty are evident now. A society may allow the death penalty in order to punish offenders, prevent them from reoffending and deter other possible offenders. Research has shown, however, that executing offenders does not accomplish these aims. Okay? So it's designed to punish people, but after you've killed them, the punishment is useless. Okay. Prevent them from reoffending. They're already locked up. And deter other possible offenders, it doesn't deter them. Because the people in, who murder other people, and that's the, the primary reason why somebody gets a uh, death penalty, is uh, not the only reason, but the primary one, is, yeah, it doesn't prevent people, it doesn't prevent anybody from offending. Yeah, because the people who offend, they aren't thinking in that moment, oh, if I kill somebody, I'm going to go to prison or I'm going to be on the death row. No, they're too emotionally out of control at that moment, motivated by fear or hatred or who knows what. And they don't think of the consequence of their action. Yeah. And so... They're, they're rather shocked afterwards, you know, when they're given a death sentence because they, they just somehow thought, never thought about it. Yeah. And, you know, you can understand that because how many stupid things have we done in our lives where we didn't think about possible results until the results started coming? And then we were wait a minute, how come this is happening? Oh, I did that. Except we never thought that beforehand. Okay. It's quite beautiful in Precious Garland, Nagarjuna's text. 
he has a whole section about how to deal with uh, offenders. Yeah? And he talks about releasing them when they're ready, giving them good medical and dental care. And if somebody is really hopeless and you really can't trust them, you banish them to another area, another country. So not so that you get rid of them in your country, but so that they can go somewhere where they're not known and start over again. Quite amazing what Nagarjuna said, this this thing of let's punish people, which is often a big political stunt to get elected. You know, I mean, that's what happened... um, who was Clinton running against at the beginning? The first, George H.W., uh, yeah, the first George. Okay, so, um, yeah, so they were each trying to top each other in, uh, you know, being tough on crime. And that's a, a good way, because when you make the population afraid, then if you make yourself tough on t- crime, People think that you're on their side and you're going to protect them. Yeah. So it's, it's all they're really fear-based. And if the money that was spent imprisoning people, because it is extremely expensive to imprison people, especially for life, very expensive, if they use that money instead to rehabilitate people, it would be very different. Some of those people, you know, would be ready to come out and, you know, be responsible citizens. But there's so many things that that uh, need to be taken care of in society that are so mixed in with the whole uh, prison system, you know. Cause how did the people get there to start with? Poverty, why is there poverty, lack of, lack of proper education, defunding schools, not paying teachers proper salaries. I mean, there's so many things that are all intertwined. Yeah. So a lot of things need to be corrected. Okay. I believe, this is His Holiness, I believe that human beings are not violent by nature. Unlike tigers, we are not naturally equipped with sharp teeth and claws for killing. The basic nature of each sentient being is pure. Human beings become violent owing to their afflictions, which exist in all of us. From this point of view, each of us has the potential to commit a crime as long as ignorance, hostility, attachment, and jealousy are within us. How then can we self-righteously condemn others as evil, evil and disposable? Our own disturbing attitudes and emotions won't be overcome by executing others. What is deemed criminal varies greatly from country to country. 
to use the death penalty as a punishment for such diverse actions is subjective and unreasonable. Furthermore, if we wish to deter criminal activity and prevent harmful activities, society must take care of children and ensure they receive a good education. And to have a good education, they need lunch and they need breakfast. Because a lot of kids come to school hungry because the parents are busy or the parents are addicted to drugs or there's no food in the house. One of the men that I wrote to, uh, he was in, he had quite a long sentence for armed robbery. And uh, he was one of four brothers in the family. And I said, kind of, you know, how did you get involved in this? And he said, well, when you go to the refrigerator and all that you see is a box of baking soda and you have younger siblings, you've got to do something. Yeah? So he did armed robbery, you know, got locked up. He's out now. Yeah? And boy, did he work hard on himself to change himself. When we first started writing, oh my goodness, he was uh, he was in maximum security prison, and he was rebellious. He had a big mouth. He didn't listen to anybody. He didn't cooperate. And he, and at some point, he just decided he needed to change, and slowly he went from uh, being in a class fifth class five classification to four to three to two, you know, and then he wound up in minimum before he was released. It was quite remarkable. Uh-huh. So, but he, he really put effort into that. And then he wanted to take refuge in precepts. So we, he arranged with the, um, uh, with the chaplain so that he was in the chaplain's office and I could call the chaplain's office. And we did the whole ceremony over the phone with the chaplain, you know, watching. (laughs) It was really quite sweet. Okay. Executing human beings is an especially severe punishment because it is so final. A human life is terminated and the executed person is deprived of the opportunity to change and to compensate for the harm he caused. However deplorable the act a person may have committed, everyone has the potential to improve and correct himself. I am a great admirer of Mahatma Gandhi's policy of ahimsa, or nonviolence. I appeal to those countries that employ the death penalty to observe an unconditional moratorium. At the same time, I encourage citizens and governments to give more support to education and to encourage a greater sense of universal responsibility for all beings in children and adults. I was so surprised in Singapore you know, because they have uh, uh, the sentence for uh, smuggling drugs in is death penalty. Yeah. 
And I remember to t talking to one of the students, you know, who was a very dedicated Buddhist. And we were talking about the death penalty, and I was saying how harmful it is and how it's considered killing and, and everything. And he was so shocked that I was against a government policy. Yeah, because this is what the government did, and the government must know what they're doing. And he never thought about it as murder. So he never thought about it as breaking the precepts. And he never thought about, uh, you know, his mind that went along with it as a mind that creates the karma of killing. So I gave him a piece of my mind. <laughs> but I was so surprised. Yeah. Were you there at that time? Anyway, yeah, it was just, it was so surprising that he had never thought about that in Buddhist terms. And yet he was, you know, quite uh, devout. Next one, vegetarianism. Eating meat involves the destructive action of killing, even if we are not the butcher or fisherman. Being vegetarian is best, although it depends on our health. The Buddha specifically forbade his followers to eat meat in three circumstances. And here's a quote from the Bajjama Nikaya, Jivaka, so he's talking to the uh, doctor. Jivaka, I say that there are three instances in which meat should not be eaten. When it is seen, heard, or suspected that the living being was slaughtered for one's own consumption. Okay. I say that there are... Uh, yeah, okay. So when it, 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 you see that somebody is killing it for you, you uh, ask someone to kill it for you, or you hear that they're going to, or you suspect that they uh, killed it for you. So those are the three where uh, meat should not be eaten. Then the Buddha says, I say that there are three instances in which meat may be eaten when it is not seen, not heard, and not expect, suspected that the living being was slaughtered for one's own consumption. Okay? Now, what about nowadays when most animals are slaughtered and we don't see, hear, or suspect that they are being killed for our own personal consumption. Does that mean that it's karma-free? I don't think so. You know, it's certainly less than killing the animal than yourself, asking somebody else to do it, or just suspecting that they did it and allowing them to do it. But... I think, you know, 
there's in the economic system, there's supply and demand. And when we go to the store and buy something, it's creating the demand for other people to kill the animals to fulfill the supply part of the bargain. Okay. Mahayana scriptures prohibit eating meat irrespective of those three situations, although there are a few exceptions. In previous years, His Holiness says, I would drive by poultry farms on the way to visit Tibetan settlements in South India. Hearing the chickens squawk in fear and seeing the horrible conditions in which they lived upset me greatly. When I heard that Tibetans ran these enterprises, I asked them to close them down and seek other employment. I am very happy that they have complied. But he still talks about how difficult it is for him to go by the poultry farms in India. Um, when I grew up in Tibet, the custom was to serve great amounts of meat during feasts and ceremonies. Thinking of so many animals being killed distressed me. In addition, it is unfitting for Buddhist practitioners who say they are practicing compassion to teach other being to eat other beings' flesh. In Tibet and now in India, I repeatedly said that this must stop. And now most monasteries do not serve meat during public gatherings. However, just outside the monastery boundary are restaurants that serve meat. So the monks who want to go eat meat easily go to those restaurants. And some monasteries uh, uh, have stopped serving meat completely. Others uh, will still serve it from time to time. Similarly, only vegetarian food should be served at gatherings at Dharma centers. Yeah? So at Dharma centers in the West, only vegetarian food should be served. But I've been to Dharma centers in the West where meat, chicken, fish is served and is plentiful. Yeah. So don't think everybody listens to His Holiness. They don't. Okay. Otherwise, it is strange for people to hear teachings on compassion and then eat meat during the breaks between teachings. So in the monasteries, you know, when they rebuilt the monasteries in, in South India, you'll notice that they'll have the monastery and then the big, uh, you know, the building, the main prayer hall. And then around the, near the main prayer hall, there'll be the debating grounds and there may be some grass or something like that. And then, you know, there's a wall and there's gates. And at the gates uh, in the ground, there's pipes, yeah. So you walk over when as you're going through the gates because you know unless uh, it's a, they have 
it's a teaching by His Holiness and they have to check everybody's IDs. The gates are open and there's these big pipes, you know, kind of embedded in, in, you know, with a ditch underneath them. And you kind of wonder, well, what are these for? I mean, okay, yeah, it rains and the rainwater goes under, you know, in the ditch under that. But, you know, why did they put pipes in? And somebody explained to me, he said, this was a monk who explained, when the animals are alive, we don't want them to come into the area where the temple and the debate yard are. When they have those pipes, the animals can't walk across them because their feet get stuck, you know, in between them. But when the animals are dead, we welcome to come, them to come into the temple. It's really great. Of course, he, he was, you know, quite aware of the hypocrisy of the whole thing. But, uh, yeah. Okay. So similarly, only vegetarian food should be served at gatherings at Dharma centers. Yeah, otherwise it is strange for people to hear teachings on compassion and then eat meat during the break times between teachings. Many people can be vegetarian without adverse consequences to their health. They take care of their diet and live in a place where they can procure healthy food. I would prefer to be a vegetarian. However, after some time of not eating meat, I fell ill with jaundice and traces of it remained as a chronic health problem. My doctors advised that due to my strenuous schedule, I should eat meat. Although I aspire and would, and pr would prefer to be totally vegetarian, now I must accept being a part-time vegetarian. If those with health problems find it difficult to avoid eating meat, eating the flesh of large animals will prevent fewer living beings from dying. Eating small animals such as shellfish and chicken or any kind of fish causes many more beings to be killed for just one meal. Okay, now, next one. Neutering pets. Okay. From one perspective, spaying and neutering animals is seen as cruel. But from another perspective, when there are so many dogs and cats that they all suffer, don't have enough to eat, and spread disease to one another, there may be, may be a good reason to spay and neuter animals. This is now done in Dharamsala, where I live. But I also remember somebody in a break time between teachings going up and asking him specifically about this, and he would not give his stamp of approval to it. Yeah, he said there's these kind of conditions and these kind of conditions, you know, where people may want, you know, think it's the best thing to do, but he would not say, yeah, go ahead, that's fine. Okay, sexual ethics. Oh, now there's only a page and a half, but I'm sure, you know, what well, you guys, I hope, won't talk so much about it. But boy, when you talk about this with lay people, it's like, 
Anyway, sexual ethics falls within the general rubric of non-harmfulness, which is the fundamental principle in defining ethical conduct. The fundamental activity to abandon is adultery because it causes confusion and jealousy for the two people involved and for their families. The specific details of unwise and unkind sexual behavior are related to the culture and values of a particular society at a particular time. So if you read what Vasubandhu wrote, because he was the one who made, all, who kind of spelled out all the specific things about what not to do, um, you know, that it seems like that was not in the, uh, in the sutras, but Vasubandhu spelled it out. And you can see that it really uh, depends a lot on the culture of the place. Yeah. For example, there's, there's one thing of uh, you, you're not supposed to have sex in the daytime. People always ask me, why not? Well, in old India, ancient India, the whole family lived in one room. And everybody went out to work in the fields. And if you weren't working in the fields or cooking or doing something for the family during the day, but you were messing off in the house, people knew about it and they didn't like it. And if somebody walked in on you, that would be very embarrassing too. So you can see, you know, some kind of practical concerns there. Okay. In ancient times, going to a prostitute was not considered sexual misconduct if the customer paid her properly. That one just makes my blood boil, almost, figuratively, okay? Um, however, yeah, present societal values, by and large, consider prostitution exploitation of vulnerable people. Yeah, young girls are sold into prostitution, and runaway teenagers are manipulated into it. Single mothers living in poverty turn to sex work to put food on the table for their kids. It is not the women and children who are at fault here, but the pimps and johns who keep the system going with the excuse of helping these poor women and girls by providing them income. If men's intention were to help women and children, they would give them a safe place to live, an education and job training, not make them into prostitutes. Prostitution is also a social issue rooted in poverty and lack of respect for other human beings. And usually, who do they blame? The women. They arrest the women. Why are the women out there because of the men. Yeah. If the men didn't want to go to prostitutes, the women would not be prostitutes. Yeah, you have your supply and demand thing again here. If a person voluntarily chooses to earn their livelihood through sexual services, 
And those services do not damage oneself or others in the short term or long term, the situation would not be considered sexual misconduct. Because every once in a while you get some prostitutes who say, this is my job, this is my career, you know, I don't want to stop, and it doesn't bother me at all. So that applies to those situations. But, you know, the, the whole thing of especially trafficking children and teenage girls, you know, and women with, because um, one of the things that, that they often do is the people who maybe they're getting beaten, mistreated at home, they run away or they, uh, you know, take a bus to the nearest main city. So the pimps hang out at the bus station and look for the girls and the women who look forlorn and, you know, and alone. And they take them in and they give them food and they give them drugs. And they get them hooked on drugs. And then the, the girls and the women become dependent on the pimps. Uh, for their drugs and for the money to buy the drugs. And it's a vicious cycle and it's quite horrible, you know. And it really ruins the women's uh, life and their sense of self-esteem, not only because they're prostitutes, but because now they're drug addicts too. Gays and lesbians are widely accepted in Western societies. And there is increasing support of their equal rights in housing, employment, marriage, military service, participation in religion, and so on. In these societies, homosexuality would not be considered unwise and unkind sexual behavior when practiced in a respectful relationship and with protection against sexually transmitted disease, just as in a... a a um, heterosexual relationship. The main point, whether one is straight or gay, is not to hurt others, either emotionally or physically, through one's sexuality. Everyone is, avoid, is advised to avoid sexual relationships that are manipulative, inconsiderate, or that can be emotionally or physically damaging to one or both parties. Safe sex with the use of condoms is a priority in upholding the Buddhist principle of non-harming. Nowadays, pornography is widespread, especially via the internet. Material that reduces human beings to sexual objects harms both the, view harms both the viewer and the viewed. It stimulates undue lust that easily leads to inappropriate sexual behavior, especially in the case of child pornography. Instead of receiving love and support from adults, these young people are objectified and seen as the sexual playthings of lustful adults. Their self-esteem is severely damaged and they lose trust in adults. Spouses may be offended and lose respect for their beloved life partner who looks at pornography. The state of mind that objectifies others and makes them into sexual objects for, one own, for one's own pleasure is the opposite of the love and compassion we are trying to cultivate on the spiritual path. 
It inhibits opening our hearts towards others and destroys our happiness now and in the future. Anybody have issues with any of that? Because this comes up a lot, and so you need to uh, know how to answer this question and why it's like this. Mm, He mentions that if someone voluntarily chooses to earn their livelihood through sexual services, da-da-da-da-da, it would not be considered sexual misconduct. But it seems that it could be, because... um, if a client comes is and that married. client is married, yes, then it could be. Yeah. yeah. So, but you know, I don't know how many of the clients tell the prostitutes that they're married or not. <laughs> yeah. And do the prostitutes ask? <laughs> yeah. Uh huh. Um, I have to say, maybe it's just because our culture has been so used to having gays and lesbians in our world is to put that between prostitution and pornography. It's just an odd thing. I mean, it's just a a preference for people. And it sounds like this is, well, we're going to make this normal. We're going to make this okay. It just seems to be an odd thing to put into sexual ethics when it should be basically what we're saying for gays and lesbians should be said about all sexual relationships irregardless. So I find it to be inappropriately placed in this and unnecessary. Well, the heading is sexual ethics. So under sexual ethics, you have many different topics. But I would put, I would put, I would also say gays, lesbians, and straight people Mm -hmm. should be following these rules, not just the gays and the lesbians. Yeah. I think that was covered back when we did the, uh, the 10 destructive actions. It's just putting it into this In between this, prostitution yeah, I understand and pornography. What you're saying it's between kind of prostitution odd. and pornography. It was put there simply because it is a, 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 you know, something. Many people who talk about gays and lesbians, their ob- objection is that it is not morally right. So that's why it got put under the topic of ethics. And yeah, it probably would have been better to separate it out, you know. Yeah. I have a question about that same section. So um, the paragraph starts with, gays and lesbians are widely accepted in Western societies. Mm -hmm. And in the next sentence it says, in these societies, referring to the Western societies Uh earlier, Homosexuality would not be considered unwise and unkind mm-hmm. sexual behavior. So it begs the question as to whether it would be considered in other societies. Yeah, well, remember earlier in the thing, it said uh, the specific details of unwise and unkind sexual behavior are related to the culture and values of a particular society at a particular time. Okay, so now... Some years ago, I forget what magazine it was. It was a gay publication. They interviewed His Holiness about this, about, you know, being gay or lesbian as a thing of, of morality. And His Holiness at that time, he was not used to being asked this question. He was not prepared. Okay. So he... Uh, he kind of talked about what Vasubandhu said. But what was interesting is the people in the magazine rewrote 
what His Holiness said, or re- they edited it to really water it down so that it sounded like things are okay. Yeah? Uh, because His Holiness never wants to offend other people. In Tibetan society, in response to your question, okay, it is not considered okay. And it's not considered okay to the point that if you ask anybody, they will say there aren't any gays or lesbians in Tibet, in Tibetan society. Yeah. You say, does any of that go on in the monastery? Oh, no, never. And then you hear stories. So, you know, it's a delicate thing. His Holiness is in a difficult position because on the one hand, he is expected to uphold the entire tradition and everything that the great Indian pandits said, or find a way to reinterpret them. You know, like he said, we can throw, Vasubandhu also talked about the world being flat, and he said we can, we've proven that that is it's not flat, and the measurements of where the sun and moon are don't correspond with what science has. So we can ignore what it says in the scriptures. But it's very difficult for him on something like this, you know, where Vasubandhu said it, and he's a Tibetan, he's representing all of Tibetan society. The Tibetans themselves, you know, just don't think or talk about this. And then he's in a Western setting being interviewed by a gay magazine, or he's just in a public talk where you have people of so many different gender identifications that I cannot remember all the names or the definitions of all of them. There's so many now. And he wants to say something that is meaningful to the people. He does not want to insult anybody. And he does not want people to feel pushed away. But he's stuck in a really difficult place. So, as the person who was editing this, I tried to write it in certain ways so that, you know, you could see it's okay in one culture, but Every other, every culture has its own choice. Yeah. And Western culture a hundred years ago was very different too. Even 50 years ago was very different. Okay. Even 20 years ago, there weren't so many different gender alternatives 20 years ago that, that people could choose, you know? So this kind of thing is changing. It's up to the the minds of the human beings in that culture at that time. But the main thing that he did emphasize is non-harmfulness. And that's the same no matter 
whether you're gay or straight or this or that or trans or it doesn't matter okay so that's the thing that that was that was he was trying to emphasize in here and it was certainly emphasized when he uh when we discussed sexual ethics as the third uh non-virtue uh done by the body okay And, you know, there's one thing with Westerners that I've noticed. Uh, and, you know, is we want to take Buddhism and pull out the things that agree with our cultural perspective, our political perspective, our economic perspective. We like to pull out the things that agree with our ideas about how society should be. And we're not too hot on listening to what the ancient text said about this, where things were very, very different. And I'm not saying that the ancient way is better. I mean, certainly some of the things written about women I, I completely disagree with. Yeah, but it's, it's just, you know, here you have culture coming, you know, different cultural perspectives coming together and clashing. Yeah. And uh, even, you know, when I'm with Chinese Buddhists, I do not talk about gays and lesbians and things like that unless somebody asks me. You know, like right when we were in Taiwan, right before they had the vote. But otherwise, I will not bring it up because in Chinese society, you know, you don't talk about it and there isn't any and you're not supposed to be. And yet there are and people keep it hidden. Yeah. And I don't want to jump in in the middle of that. <laughs> where people are very, very emotional, and where I personally feel that it is um, something that depends on the individual, on the culture, on the historical time, and so on. And the main thing is non-harmfulness. We're learning once that, and maybe this applies here a little bit, that actually a lot of, well, I heard this in reference to men, a lot of men who have sex with men actually don't consider themselves homosexual. And I think this could be the case in a lot of mm. other cultures mm. besides ours. They don't identify with that label or that anything about that culture that we might have in the US. Mm. They're just men who have sex with men and it's not any kind of identity. <laughs> Mm. They don't. They wouldn't use those labels. They wouldn't anything. Mm. And I. Which societies? I've read here, and I've read about. I've heard about this in Latin societies, but also in this society. Mm. Mm? They would not consider themselves gay or bi. No, in fact, when in the AIDS in the era of AIDS, um, 
when people finally were understanding what was going on and there was you know massive uh, action to prevent infection and they were targeting gay communities specifically and they were continuing to see rises in cases that they couldn't understand and began to identify that there is a whole culture of men having sex with men who absolutely did not identify as gay and so the material, even the information about the infection was not get, reaching them at all. Hmm. So it was it, it had to be developed as a specific kind of education program to let people understand what was happening. Hmm. So how did they get that out to? Well, I wasn't an AIDS educator, but I do okay. know that it was specifically huh. it had to okay. be tailored in that way. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So we're going to close here.